Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This is the last episode that I record before heading out to Gallifrey One in Los Angeles for next week's convention. I'll be making two appearances on panels on the Friday, so come find me if you're there and say hello. This week, we're going to get straight into it. It is 1981, the shortest target year to date, only three new books, and the post-Terrence Dix era. He only writes one book this year, and not this one. The great Fraser Gregory is back with us this week as we talk about David Fisher's first novelization, Terence had earlier novelized David Fisher's first two scripts from the Key to Time season, The Stones of Blood and The Androids of Tara, but from this point on in the target line, the books, wherever feasible, are going to be adapted by the TV author rather than by Terence Dix or the in-house stable, with some notable exceptions. This will be the first of four novelizations put out by David Fisher, two in the 20th century, and then two more in the 21st. So, with Fraser on board, let's get to it. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and every two weeks or so I'm joined by a two to three person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including Dalton Hughes and Alison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Enjoy your travels. So, Fraser, welcome back. It's been a while. How have you been? I've been good. How have you been? I could complain, but that would make this podcast a very, very different listening experience. So I'll just say, it's all good, man. All good. All good. What have you been up to podcast-wise since the last time you and I did this show together, which was about two months ago at this point? Oh, very little, if I'm being honest. I've had quite a quite a lean couple of months just with it being Christmas and and whatnot. I did um, sit down with um, our good friend Joe Ford um, a couple of weeks back and we did Hansel the Blunt and Knife for Time of the Doctor. So I always get confused as to which noun of the Doctor episode is which in the Moffat era. I want to say Time of the Doctor was the 2013 Christmas special where Matt Smith lives for 2,000 years on the planet Christmas, and the episode takes place in real time. 
And then he has a 45-minute long regeneration sequence at the end. You're sort of right. I mean, it was the town of Christmas on the planet of Trenzalor. But other than that, yeah. Yes, yeah. The final <laughs> the final episode of the Matt Smith era. Um, so we've, we've recorded that. But otherwise, I've been quite quite quiet to be honest so it's nice to get on here and nice to get talking about about some doctor who again you were last here episode 53 for underworld this week we have a much better tv story although whether or not the book is better than terence's book is a debate that we can solve over the coming hour <laughs> it's interesting with season 17 right because i came of fandom age on rec arts doctor who in the early 90s where season where season 17 was just considered the absolute worst abomination in the history of all mankind and the deluge of hatred for any season 17 story except city of death on rec arts 30 years ago was pretty caustic the entire run from creature of the nightmare of naimon <laughs> as it was called colloquially, was not very well regarded. And being a youngster, I was you know barely out of my teens when I joined Rec Arts. I pretty much went along with the majority, and I was of the opinion that Creature from the Pit was god-awful. When I wrote my review of Creature for the Doctor Who Ratings Guide probably 20 years ago, I also initially was very, very dismissive of it. Mm-hmm. Then time went by. Then I watched it again, and I realized that this is, well, I'll let you tell your story first, and then I'll tell you what I think. Um, so my story would be, you know, it's very much uh, a one of those episodes where you do get lulled in by the, the received fan wisdom, um, and you think, well, that's rubbish. Um, that's a terrible story from a terrible season because everyone else says it is. So it was one that I never actually got round to watching um, until possibly a year or two ago and just instantly loved it. Um, I think it's, the, the for me, it's, it's my favourite story out of that season. Um, I think it's just a perfect culmination of everything coming together. Everyone's on the same page, um, writing, direction, acting, is all coming together to make something that's just fantastically fun and funny. Interesting. I would not say that it's my favorite of the season because this is a City of Death house, and City of Death is that one story that I can watch over and over again. Never get tired of it. I've got a huge sentimental fondness for Destiny of the Daleks for reasons yep. that I talked about when we covered that episode a while back. Yeah, And Horns of Nymon I also have tremendous fondness for, for reasons that I explained on this show two or three weeks ago when Ross Aiken was on here to discuss. Yes, Nightmare of Eden is the only completed story out of season 17 that I tolerate more than love. And Shada, well, that's a whole different story because we've gotten so many different versions of Shada, and I kind of have Shada fatigue at this point, but Creature from the Pit... When I watched it in 2019, there were all these amazing scenes, which I had seen but never paid attention to before, that suddenly cast the story in a whole new perspective for me. And comparing what's on TV to the novelization, it looks as if all the best scenes in the story were written by Douglas Adams rather than David Fisher. 
but the stuff that Douglas Adams wrote that Fisher leaves out of the novelization are all tremendously amazing scenes. And I'll yeah. be playing, uh, you know, I just realized I'm dealing with new bifocals and I just realized that your screen name for Zencaster today is Fraser Adrasta. <laughs> yes. Very well played. <laughs> yeah. I do like to wear, uh, come on with a name when I'm on, on a Dastroscape. Not, uh, Zencaster. <laughs> you said you said Adrasta again. Well, I said Astra because I've been struggling with this because it's only this week that I've realised that it's Adrasta and not Adastra. It's the whole time I've been watching the creature from the pit, and I've watched it nearly half a dozen times now. And when I've read the book, I have read Adastra and not Adrasta. So I'm going to struggle tonight to actually say Adrasta because this is. This is so ingrained in my head now. One of the reasons is I work for the um, the Out of Hours um, Doctor Service in the UK, and one of our biggest um, providers that we refer into uses a system called Adastra. So we refer to Adastra quite a lot at work um, in terms of, you know, Adastra has gone down, we've put this on Adastra manually. So it's just so ingrained in my head if I, if I do start saying... Adastra rather than Adrasta, I do apologize. I had a similar experience with Keeper of Tracken, to use the American pronunciation. This is with my first year of becoming a fan. I only knew about the story from the blurbs in the program guide or from the list of upcoming titles on the back of a lot of the Target books of the era holding up the back cover now of Creature. Keeper of Trocken is not on there because it's uh, too early in the production run. But I thought that I was reading The Keeper of the Traken, T-R-A-K-E-N, The Traken. I thought it was some underworld sea creature Uh. and a similarly spelled creature from the 1981 film Clash of the Titans. I was expecting some sea creature that was being kept and I didn't realize until I got the novelization, wait a minute, it's not the Keeper of the Traken, it's the Keeper of Traken, or Traken, if you will. So that was a similar moment to you. However, I was much younger than you are now when I realized my mistake. <laughs> yeah, but... Although, I am the same guy who went through law school calling one of the guys in my study group by the wrong first name the whole year. Because in law school, everyone goes by their last name in class. Uh-huh. And his name was Mike. But the first time he said it, I heard Mark. And I spent the entire year calling him Mark. And he never, ever, ever corrected me. <laughs> and I didn't realize my mistake until the end of the year when I saw a class list. And he then flunked out and never came back for second year. So I spent the entire year calling this dude by the wrong name. And he was too polite to ever say anything. And now I have no idea where he is, so I'll never be able to fix that. So, Mike, if you're out there, sorry about that, Mark. <laughs> I, I get mixed. I get my name confused quite a lot at work as well. I don't. I don't always get phrase. I get Trevor. Hmm. Answer the phone to to someone. Hi, it's Fraser. And oh, hi, Trevor. And there was a there was a guy who spent about six months thinking I was called Ray. <laughs> he thought when I was saying hi, it's Fraser. He thought I was saying hi, Ray here. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> so Ray, Trevor. I've also gone by Patrick in the past and I don't know why. Um there's hmm. a guy that when I was in used to get at my local pub when I was back in me late teens, early twenties, who was convinced I was called Patrick. And every night I had to explain to him that I wasn't called Patrick. But every night he was so drunk he would forget that I corrected him. So the next time he would come in and start calling us Patrick again. I have had three or four different people, all in different decades, think that my name is Justin. So I've spent the better part of the last 25 years dealing with three or four, three or four people who think that I'm a Justin, which, of course, I never have been. There's no T in my first name. Not sure where that comes from, but it's funny how the ears play tricks on people. Yes, very much so. So you are a fan of Creature from the Pit as televised. Yes, big fan. And season 17, on the whole, you were a big supporter, a lukewarm supporter. I guess you're not a hater. No, I'm a big supporter. Um, you know, well, you just rattled off the the stories that's in there. Um, you know, Creature from the Pit, obviously my favorite. Um, you know, City of Death is is also a very strong episode. Um, I didn't used to think so, but I've got uh, our good friend Cy Hart for, to thank for bringing me around to appreciating that a bit more. Oh, um, Cy is a legend, and that's a, that's a reason why. Yeah. Um, Destiny of the Daleks is could be better in a lot of places, but it's still got you know quite a lot of strong elements going for it. Um, Horns and Naimon is just glorious fun. Um, there is no better supporting performance in the whole of Doctor Who than Graham Crowden as Sol Deed. Um, yeah, if you had the chance to listen to me and Ross on the Horns of Nymon episode here a couple of weeks ago, we are very much of the same religion when it comes to Nymon. There's only one one person that's ever come close to it, and that's Paul Darrow in Time Lash. Um, and then Nightmare of Eden, again, it's, it's got some really good elements. I think it's just a little bit tonally off. Um, you know, the comedy element coming into what could have been a, a really strong sort of... Um, Agatha Christie-esque story around drug running. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think that's that's a really strong story as well. Um, I, when I watched that recently, when I had the, the season 17 box set came out and I, I watched that, it struck as very much as this is the this is where Pip and Jane got Terror of the Vervoids from. Yes. You know, you could see just this is... This has got the exact same DNA. This is where they've picked that up. So on a whole, the series is is really strong and fan and and well built. And I think um the fact that it has gone so long being so maligned is it's pretty ridiculous, to be honest. It's funny, to this day, all because Jeremy Bentham wrote only one negative review in his chapter in Doctor Who a Celebration. And his one negative review is for the gunfighters. To this day, people are still saying, I'm in the minority here, but I like this story. And if you look at it, everybody now loves the gunfighters. I think everyone yep. now can appreciate it for what it is. We all come full circle. But people are still reflexively apologizing for their position because one guy wrote one paragraph yep. in a book literally 40 years ago that's been out of print probably for 35 years. And we are still, as fans, bowing and scraping and avoiding that opinion. 
So similar to season 17, these are stories that someone decided they didn't like a long time ago, and that opinion has kind of calcified. And of course, I was guilty of it myself, but with Creature, I think you have to suspend disbelief. There's one element of the story, and this is really the elephant in the room. (laughs) There's one element in the story that does not work, and it wasn't a good idea, and you have to wonder why the production team thought they could ever get away with it. And I am speaking, of course about the massive pulsating blunder that is replacing John Leeson with David Brierley. <laughs> Listening to canine in this story sounds like an imposter. And I just, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the nightmare of Eden episode. In retrospect, I like what he's doing with the role. It's kind of like, you know, a regenerated version of canine with a new personality, but he's just no John Leeson. And every time I turn it on, I'm expecting to hear John Leeson. And I get yeah. David Brierley being snippy instead, and it's still hard to take. Yeah, um, I mean, I that doesn't affect me as much um, because you know I'm not one that's grown up with K9 to the extent that other people have. Um, you know, it is it is a bit of a shock to the system the first time. You know, you you hear and you think, well, that isn't the K9 that I'm used to, um, but it's it. It's something I can get over quite easily um, and get around quite easily. It's it's sort of like you know Jeffrey Beavers coming in and playing the master, and you know it's it's a take on the character. Um, it's you know David Bradley playing the first Doctor. You know there's a there's a take on the character there, which either like or you don't like, and if you don't like it, that's fair enough. But for me, it's it's quite it's quite enjoyable. You know, I get I can tune into that K nine quite easily after after just a few a few minutes. So it's not nearly as, as egregious as a mistake as that huge big pulsating mess that the production team should never have come up with, which was spinning aluminium around a neutron star to deflect it away from a planet. I I mean I'm not a physicist. <laughs> and the last time that I took a physics class was in 1990 when I was, uh, you know, 16, 17 years old. But having read the audio commentary, so I should say that again, having read the DVD text commentary for this story on the DVD, I believe that goes into pretty good detail as, as to why that could never happen. But it's funny, I didn't think you were going in that direction when you were talking about the massive mistake. I thought you were talking about the massive ridiculous, comically oversized mistake that is Torvin's accent as the lead bandit. <laughs> no. Um, again, I, li- I love that band of, of bandits. Um, and I love the way that Romana interacts with them. Um, I don't know if it's made it over to the States, but there was a children's program, I think it was the early 90s, which was called Maid Marion and Her Merry Men. I've never heard of that, but just trying to say that back is giving me palpitations. (laughs) Maze Marion and her merry men. Yes. So the basis of the story of the the series is that um, Robin Hood was never actually competent. He was just some, um, you know, quite ridiculous um, tailor who just by pure happenstance gets, you know, lumbered in with these other outlaws uh, and the the real brains behind the operation was was made marion so she is in command of these um 
quite hopeless bandits um, or outlaws. You know, the whole series is, is around um, everyone thinking that Robin Hood is really quite, you know, dashing and heroic when really he's, he's just quite cowardly and incompetent and she's the real power behind the throne. And that scene with um, with Romana where she, you know, is, is first captured by them and then is, you know, takes control of the whole situation and is telling them to sit and they're all sitting down doing exactly what they should have told. It just struck me so much as, as Maid Marion and a Merry Men. So, um, again, the accent, never bothered us. I've... I've probably never even noticed it until you've mentioned it. So I'm going to have to go back and watch now. I didn't realize that was meant to be an anti-Semitic stereotype because in the States, we have our own set of anti-Semitic stereotypes. In the States, the typical Jewish accent is what my grandparents would have spoken. The Yiddish accent that you hear in old movies where the syntax is backwards because Yiddish to English doesn't translate because the nouns and the verbs go in a different order. If you listen to how Yoda speaks backward mm-hmm. sentences, Frank Oz being of Jewish descent, Yoda comes from the uh, Yiddish way of speaking. Right. So that's the positive version of the stereotype. But again, most Jewish stereotypes in the States come from that way of speaking. What you get in Creature from the Pit, I believe, is drawn from one interpretation of the character Fagin in one of the movie versions of Oliver Twist. Mm-hmm. It would have sailed so far over my head when I was 12 years old. I would not have been familiar with that one performance of that one movie of a book that yep. I had not at the time read. So it wasn't until I got the discontinuity guide where they point out that this is meant to be an anti-Semitic stereotype. And I, I wouldn't have known that. Uh, of course, watching it now, hearing the guy uh, lust over money and being a hoarder, that also has a whole bunch of negative connotations. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't pick up on that at all myself. Like I say, when I watched it, um, it was just a, a band of of outlaws, of bandits together. Um, I didn't pick up on anything sort of anti-Semitic whatsoever. Um, I'll put my hands on the table, though I'm a middle-aged cis white guy, straight white guy. You know, I wear my privilege like armour the whole time. So, you know, I'm quite happy for people to... You know, point out to me the the problems with things like um, like this if they are there, uh, and take that on board. So, um, yeah, I'll certainly watch that in another another like going forward. It's probably one of those things that could have been fixed if the director said you're sounding a little too much like a particular interpretation of history's most anti-Semitic fictional character. You might want to pick a different voice. That probably could solve it although again i'm talking cross-culturally here from the states where that's not really a thing so i I can't speak to that perfectly i think what's worse is the anti-semitic tropes in talons of wang chiang which is a story that is so big and so problematic that i discussed it in two separate episodes of the show that one i discussed in the talons episode and then I came back and discussed it a couple of weeks later when I had Graham Burke on talking about, yeah. um, I believe it was um, Mask of Mandragora. Yeah. So not quite as obvious to me as uh, the two scenes in Talons of Wang Chiang, but I'm told that it's there. And having read the text commentary on the DVD of Creature from the Pit, 
I, I can I can see it, and it's problematic for me. But it is not a deal breaker to enjoying the story, because we haven't talked about the best part of the story, and it's commonly described as one of the worst parts of the story. And I am talking, of course, about once you get underground, and you know the doctor is cast into the pit. What is this creature? What is this creature? And then you realize the creature from the pit is Jeffrey Belden, who gives perhaps one of my favorite, not a villain, obviously, but one of my favorite guest star hero performances. And this is coming in the same season as Duggan. So that's, that's pretty good company. Yes. And I think he does just incredible. He is instantly winning. And when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was just captivated by him. And he gets one of the best lines in the entire story. The future foretold, the past explained, the present apologized for. And I didn't get that line again until I was uh, much later on in life. And it's different in the novelization than it is on screen. Yes. But the line that he delivered is one of Doctor Who's most winning moments. And that is your creature from the pit. Big fan of Organon. Big fan of Jeffrey Belden. Well, when you were talking about performances there, I thought you were going to be going for Myra Francis, who I think also gives uh, one of the best villain performances that we ever get in Doctor Who. Um, and she gets some cracker lines as well. Um, the one that doesn't make it into the book, which I'm really sad about, is point the dog at the rock! When- <laughs> when she's kind of losing the plot towards the end of um, episode three, I think it is, um, which is another another classic um, line, as well as the all-time classic, we call it The Pit. <laughs> the bit of Myra Francis that has been living rent-free inside my head for decades is the part three cliffhanger and again, she's acting very serious, and she's playing the story dead straight. I mean, her performance is a little bit arched, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't get it in a Shakespearean play, perhaps. But considering this is a kid's show with a couple of dubious effects, she's just really selling the heck out of it. Yeah. And when she threatens Romana, and she gives a countdown of six seconds... I mean, of all the countdowns you can go for, why six? It is so out there. But of course, now in my head, whenever I'm giving somebody a deadline, it's always six seconds. <laughs> the only other, the only other analogy to that that I could find is an image of the Fendal when the Doctor is telling Colby that he only has three minutes and then holds up four fingers. So again, you're playing against expectations, and I hear Myra Francis in my head saying that line in that cadence over and over and over again. Let's give a listen. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Now, Doctor, I mean to have that creature dead. Romana, train canines ray on it. Now! Don't do it, Romana. Or the Doctor dies. Six seconds, Romana. Get away from here. Get away! Or the Doctor dies! So yeah, that's an example of why I think that 
she gives a really underrated performance as a guest villain. But it's not just her. What about Eileen Way, who's coming back to the show for the first time in 16 years? Is uh, Madame Carella, is it? And playing the almost the exact same character that she played in Unearthly Child's Last Tribe of Gum. Oh, and again, she's she's fantastic. I um, I love the whole... Um, I love that scene between her and K-9 where, um, you know, K-9's objecting very strongly to being a tin dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the tin dog all the way through. She's saying, if, you're, if I say you're a tin dog, then you're a tin dog. <laughs> <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot accept inaccurate information. <laughs> it's just... It's just it's so funny in, in so many ways, and I think um, what you've said there about what Mary Frances given a a performance that isn't Shakespearean. I think it is very theatrical. It's very um, pantomime to a certain extent, but that don't mean that in a sort of derogatory way. I think this is a this is a an episode that I could very well see being staged in theatre. You know, you'd only need a couple of sets you know you need the pit you need the castle you need the jungle and everything else that takes place can take place within the confines of of, of a stage and in that respect you know Mary Frances performance is pitch perfect for for theatre. See this is another cross-cultural moment whereby being an American is a detriment to my fandom because we don't have that pantomime culture over here and I confess to this day, I'm still not quite sure what pantomime is, although I've certainly read enough descriptions of it. Um, the theatrical, I'm using Shakespeare as a shorthand for serious, yeah. uh, dramatic, adult, very heavy. It is definitely theatrical. I don't want to say camp, because that also has different connotations in America versus, versus England. But it is a very appealing performance and she could ruin it she could be ridiculous she could be playing towards the kids it's very easy to take a part in that story mm-hmm. dealing with that prop and I'm, again i'm talking about the uh, the prop that is the canine prop which uh, kind of defies credibility it would be easy for her to go over the top and go into full-on paul darrow territory yeah i think she plays it reasonably straight Ooh, and it's a very yeah. fun performance to listen to i've never listened to the story as an audio only but I bet listening to just the audio, she would be an even better villain. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, but you'd just the audio, you'd miss that terrific um, eyebrow lift that she does at the end of episode one, where K nine comes in for the first time and she just arches her eyebrow, and it's that's another fantastic moment. Um, but this 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 whole story just makes me laugh from start to finish. I think that's it's probably the most funny Doctor Who story there is um, in that respect. There's so many quotable lines, so many zingers, and just so many funny moments in it. Which is why the novelization for me is not the best version of the story, because it turns out that so many of the best sequences were written by Douglas Adams in the edit and did not come from David Fisher. You're assuming the novelization is based on Fisher's scripts, not the rewrites from Adam. So you're missing the how to speak Tibetan sequence. Yep. You're missing the entire last two or three minutes where Organon gets the last word. You are missing 
I'll play the audio a little bit later. It's the scene in part four where the doctor reveals to Romana that he's stolen the photon drive mm-hmm. from Organon's spaceship. Now, if you look at that material in the novelization, it's just a standard scene. And I don't know who did the rewriting of it. I don't know if it was rewritten by Douglas Adams or if Tom Baker and Lala Ward decided to change it on their own. Yeah. But the version of it in the book is not nearly as charming and as winning as the Doctor and Romana communicating just by saying the word yes to each yes. other 20 times in a row. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll play that audio a little bit later. But that's one of my favorite scenes in Doctor Who ever. And I'm going through the novelization now, trying to find the corresponding moments. I'm going to ask you to do a reading. But it's just a straight-up scene as David Fisher does it. It doesn't have any of the good stuff that is brought to the television production. So when you read the book, you want to relive your favorite moments from television. But in the book, it's just not there. So what we'll do is we'll have Fraser read the scene first, and then we'll play the televised version. So this is basically the top of chapter 10, and it's a three-hander scene between Organon and the Doctor and Romana. So, Fraser, you're reading from page 101, and I'll tell you when to stop. Well, in spite of what he says, I don't believe our large green friend was made an ambassador just because of his looks. The Doctor removed the last roast fondle leg from Organon's plate, dipped it in the Uxal sauce, and took a bite. Delicious, he announced. You were telling us about Arato, Romano reminded him. Well, he is a very shrewd, very experienced planetary negotiator. Unless I miss my guess, he has several nasty surprises up his sleeve, or tucked in the folds of his extraordinary green cerebellum. This really is very good, he went on, dipping the leg into the Uxal sauce once again. I don't like surprises, observed Organon gloomily. After a lifetime in the astrology, astrology business, I can assure you that my, in my experience, surprises have a habit of being singularly unpleasant. If that's the case, demanded Romana, why are you getting Arato out of the pit? I mean, he might go off in his spacecraft and return with a load of angry Tythonians. How did he arrive here? She asked. In an egg. The broken shell we found? The doctor nodded. When it's in one piece, it's actually a blindingly simple space vehicle complete with photon drive. We didn't see any photon drive. I did, said the doctor. He took some pieces of shell with him down to the pit. I found them there. One of these pieces is the photon drive. Romana looked worried. When we found that shell, it was transmitting some kind of message. What? Obviously a distress signal. If it was transmitting a distress signal for 15 years, pointed out Organon, surely the things on Tythonus would have done something about it by now. Maybe they have, replied the doctor. What? I don't know. That rather depends on the Tythonians. The doctor scooped up a gobbet of Uxal sauce on his finger and thoughtfully sucked it off. One thing I do know, he said at last, is that our green friend won't be leaving Chloris in a hurry. What's to stop him? Because, replied the doctor, removing a curiously shaped piece of eggshell from his pocket, I took the precaution of borrowing part of his photon drive. Doctor! Yes? That shell! Yes? 
When we first landed, it was making a noise. Yes. Could it have been a distress signal? Perhaps it was calling for help. Yes. But after 15 years... Tythonians live for up to 40,000 years, mistress. So, 15 years in the pit for one of them would be no more than the wink of an eye. Yes. Doctor, I'm sure there's some terrible danger. Danger? Yes. And Arato wants to be out of the pit and free to escape in his craft before something dreadful happens. Yes. But, Doctor, you've played right into his hands. You've let him go. Yes. Well, can't you say anything but yes the whole time? Yes. After he's told us whatever it is. Yes. And before he reaches his space vehicle to escape. Yes. Do remind me to give him back his photon drive. Yes. Yes. So how do you compare those two things, Fraser? How do you compare the David Fisher text versus the way that it is staged by the production team? I mean, the David Fisher text is, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing particularly exciting about it either, is the, um, you know, compare that with, you know, what we got on screen, which is just a delightful back and forth between Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Um, you know, Tom Baker putting so many inflections and saying the word yes in so many different ways. You know, that's it. Yes. It, it shines, you know, far above what's in the book, unfortunately. And the end of the book, do you feel that the end of the book is missing something by stopping where it does in the middle of a TARDIS scene without the doctor coming back and that's, bringing that's back good, the yeah. treaty and having that last moment with Organon? Yeah, it just needs that little something to wrap it up, doesn't it? It just, I mean, you can see why he's ended. He's ended on a joke um, of the the lucky number, but it's just, it just comes across very abrupt. Of you know, the day saved. Fair enough. We're already in the TARDIS, so we'll, let's go off to the next adventure. I think. Um, yeah, that's that was that was jarring a little bit. It's interesting because David Fisher is the guy who famously came back to the line. 10 years ago and wrote two new novelizations of his season 16 stories because in part he may have thought that the Terrence Diggs versions of Androids of Tara and Stones of Blood were too short. This is a very short book. If you factor in that it begins on page 7, it is only 115 pages long, which is shorter than Terrence's standard. So it is surprising that Fisher didn't use the maximum page count available to the target books in 1981, which would have been about 137, 138 pages. There was certainly a room for him to do a more detailed deep dive. Yeah. Because perhaps perhaps he could have rewritten this himself in the last 10 years and done a more expanded, lush audiobook version. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there is bits in there where he has expanded on, on things. You know, there's um, the whole there's, no, there's a good explanation as what happened when Arat arrived on Chloris and how we became stuck in the pit to start with, um, which is missing from the televised version. But what the, what struck me was actually how quick he moves through the book. How, you know, especially um, part one, I mean, we're used to part one's taking up um, sort of two thirds of the book. You know, if you go back right. to when we've, we've talked sort of sea devils and and Ice Warriors in that though, you know, there's a lot of you know, those early chapters are all building this the scenes, building the world, setting the scene, building up the story. But David Fisher absolutely belts through um part one in this um and gets to the cliffhanger 
by the end of page 31, I think it is. Um, you know, and again, given that we're starting on page seven, he's absolutely rattled through. One of the tricks he does that I noticed was um, he likes to not actually include his dialogue as dialogue. Yes. That makes sense. So I'll read um, this bit, this passage, um, which which demonstrates that, which is from when um, Lady Adestra has taken the Doctor prisoner, taken her back to the palace, and they're discussing the egg. Or as we call her on this show, Lady Adrasta. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. I knew <laughs> what did you make of the object at the place of death? Asked Adastra. Adrasta. You know, some of the finest brains on Claus have spent years trying to unravel the problem. What did you make of it? It's an egg, replied the doctor. Surprised, Adrasta stopped in her tracks. Are you sure? Have you ever seen anything like it before? The doctor had to admit that he hadn't, nor had he any idea what kind of creature might have laid such a huge thing. However, he was more interested at the moment in rescuing Romana than in a theoretical discussion about the nature of the object. Of course, agreed Adrasta sympathetically. I understand. I'll send a troop of guards immediately. So in that sentence, he's just squished a load of dialogue in there that's not spoken and you just kind of... Oh, okay. You know, what might have been just maybe even, you know, 30 seconds on screen is is just really truncated down. Um, the start, the TARDIS scene, again, it's just, there's about, you know, three or four minutes of TARDIS scene at the start where, yes, you know, the Doctor and K-9 are reading Beatrix Potter and Romana's um, plugging the that new thing into the, uh, the TARDIS console. And that's just a page, page and a half at best. You know, it's just so rattles through it. Uh, we're talking again about the influence of Douglas Adams. That opening TARDIS scene probably had a heavy Adams rewrite. The last scene must have been Adams because it's not in the book. The Everest in Easy Stages sequence in Part 2 is also Douglas Adams. You have to wonder whether or not Fisher's original script barely satisfied the minimum page length for a three-parter, let alone a four-parter. The the resolution, um, the the start of part two, the reprise is is quite long as well. That comes in quite, you know, there's quite a chunk of the the part one cliffhanger is reprised in part two. So I do think there's there's been some sort of pacing issues there. Um, but like you say, you would expect David Fisher to maybe correct that rather than, you know, go for broke and just say right, I'm blasting through all the way like he does. One thing that's great on television is you have some pretty epic cliffhangers. We've already talked about part three, but part one, where the Doctor wordlessly pulls Romana aside, doesn't say anything, and then jumps into the pit, is a complete subversion of expectations. And watching that for the first time, having seen it as a kid before I read the book, I thought that was an amazing cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And it's stung that I didn't get to see part two the next day, so it was a long time before I learned how it got resolved. Now, the part two cliffhanger is uh, Phantom has had very vigorous debates about that over the years. I will leave that to the experts. But I think the part one and part three cliffhangers are unusual and thus very, very memorable and interesting. Whether or not that was Fisher or Douglas Adams or the director, I guess we'll never know. But all good cliffhangers all around. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, definitely. Part one is just, um, you know, it it subverts expectations, but at the same time, it's exactly what you would expect Tom Baker's Doctor to do. You know, it's exactly the, the sort of thing, just, you know, do the th- least expected thing at the least expected time. And, you know, it's, you, you could almost say that being an ad lib if it wasn't scripted. You could think that is exactly what Tom Baker's going to do. He's going to, you know, see a script, get bored of it, and do the exact opposite of what he should do. <laughs> yes. Um, and I do wonder how many of the, the changes are, are Douglas Adams' um, scripted ones and how many are actually Tom Baker ad-libs. Because going back to um, the scene where um, on screen, a Draster delivers that line, we call it the pit. You know, there's a comeback from the Doctor um, oh, you've got such a way with words, which <laughs> isn't in the book. So, you know, you've got the funny line, but you've got the f- the funny comeback as well. Later on, when she's with Romana, she, she, you know, will get the other line, which is, we call it the creature. <laughs> Romana's comeback <laughs> is, oh, that's original, which is actually in the book. So, you know, obviously something's changed between script and screen for the doctor's reply, is that Douglas Adams or is that Tom Baker? Well, they had nine days of rehearsal before going into the studios at that point. So you had a lot of time for the artists to block their scenes and think about what worked. And that's where a lot of Tom Baker's best ad-libs and improvs came from, rehearsal, saying, why don't we try it this way? What's interesting is that this creature from the pit even though it's the third story aired in production right this is the season premiere this is the first episode shot before destiny before creature from the pit now lala ward had been a guest star in armageddon factor which is the last story they would have made for season 16 before the break so todd baker would have worked with her but he only had a few scenes with her in Armageddon, now all of a sudden they're co-stars, and you have to assume that their affair, their relationship, their eventual marriage, you have to figure that attraction began in this story, because the yes scene in part four is the Mm. first thing in Doctor Who that can be characterized as a love scene, which is really (laughs) what it is. It's Doctor Who's equivalent of the uh, chess scene from the original uh, movie version of Thomas Crown Affair. (laughs) It's doing it without doing it. And you would like to think the chemistry between them was so great that they, the two of them sat down and worked that out. So I'd like to think yeah. that was the two of them just working in perfect harmony as opposed to Douglas Adams. But e- either either way, either either way, it's just a wonderful, wonderful moment. And the book is sorrier for its not being there. Definitely. Let's talk about what David Fisher adds to the book. Because even though, as you say, some of the dialogue has been truncated or yeah. turn into prose. And even though, as I say, some of my favorite scenes on television are not here, what do you think that Fisher does to add to the book and tell us that he could not have possibly conveyed on television? Um, there's a few things. He's obviously adding backstory, he's adding texture, he's adding, um, you know, he, he, he tells us what, you know, how um, Erato arrived on the planet how he actually became stuck in the pit, which is something that isn't actually addressed on on the screen. It was how did how did Adrasta actually get him down into the pit to start with? Um, so that's all explained. Um, 
he adds, which I quite like, I'm going to do another reading for you, is the reproductive cycle of the Tythonians. Ah, uh, if you ever wondered how many genders a Tythonian has and how they reproduce, boy, is this the book for you. It seemed that Tythonians lived for about 40,000 Clarissian years, longer if they avoided any physical activity like movement or worry, and devoted themselves exclusively to music and poetry. During their lifespan, there arrived one moment when they could reproduce themselves. This involved a lengthy and fairly complex operation. Once two Tythonians, who were essentially trisexual, decided to amalgamate. They rolled together, and over the course of a hundred, couple of hundred Clarissian years, they absorbed each other, becoming a single enormous entity, probably one mile in length, possessed of no fewer than six different sexes. This entity, this double Tythonian, then gestated for about 2,000 Clarissian years, sometimes longer, and, in the fullness of time, split and produced two identical Tythonians, approximately six inches in length. There were frequent multiple births, triplets or quadruplets. These Tythonian young were fed, for the first two or three hundred years of their life, fed on a mixture of chlorophyll, sulfuric acid and a rare combination of mineral salts found only on the shores of the Orange Sea of Tythonus. Unfortunately, for the future of the race, there were never more than 63 fertile Tythonians capable of childbearing at any one time. Some of those would decide to devote their lives to the music or poetry or just lying around and chatting about this and that. The survival of each generation of Tythonian young, therefore, is of paramount importance. Without a steady supply of chlorophyll, they were doomed to an early death. Tythonus, Robotto explained, whilst undoubtedly the most beautiful planet in any galaxy, with its red skies and yellow sulfuric acid clouds and indigo beaches, was not rich in vegetation. So he's, he's given us the background there of you know, Tythonians reproducing. He's given us the background of Tythonus itself so we get an understanding of what the planet is like, um, you know, colours, skies, seas, that sort of thing. And he does a similar trick with um, Chloris as well because he adds texture to Chloris. He's, you know, the first reading I did, I talked about fondles and uxal sauce, which he puts little footnotes in. Yes, to, yes. You know, so scattered throughout his little footnotes, which explain what these strange, um, you know, creatures and measurement systems and and all sorts of, of chlorosauce. So there's, there's texture all the way through, through there, which you wouldn't be able to put on screen. Um, and there's also a little bit of a grizzly side as well. He's a bit of a, he's a bit more of a grizzly writer, um, David Fisher. Um, there's yeah, there's a, scene... a couple of rather gruesome death scenes here compared yes. to what is staged on television. Yes, and there's also um, the moment where the Doctor, having thrown himself in the pit and trying to climb down, falls and lands in something soft and wet until he realises that was the man that fell in before him. <laughs> yes, poor Morris Barry. <sighs> Good old Morris well, Barry. Well, that's what, that's, that's what Morris Barry gets for directing the Dominators. <sighs> He gets a pat on the back for directing the Dominators. <laughs> it was it wasn't Morris Barry though. It was um it was Terry Walsh. I get thrown in, wasn't it? You are right for the stun. Morris Barry played his colleague who survives. Yes. So Morris but Barry I needed, survives. I needed, I needed to reach for a cheap shot because you were here, and I know Morris <laughs> Barry is the one thing that links 
dominators and creature from the pit. So there you have yeah. it. There so most probably it. survives because he directed the dominators. He survived because getting killed off in part one would be too easy a punishment. <laughs> so yeah, that's um <laughs> back. Um, creature from the pit. That's that's what I think he really adds adds to the story. That's what makes the book um, sort of worthwhile, you know, a worthwhile um, accompaniment to the TV story as well. It is a fun read. It is an interesting read. It's just when I want to read Creature from the Pit, I want to recapture the vibe of some of my favorite moments on television. Yeah. And this book, unfortunately is not able to do that. Yeah, I can say that. I can say that. I mean, you know, obviously the, the scene at the end, but also just the vibe of the performances is there as well, is, is always going to be difficult to to capture on, on page, isn't it? Yeah, there's a great succession of guest stars, and it's a rather small part. The character is never properly given a name, but the lead huntsman who takes over the planet at the end, mm. that's a very good performance. Yeah, yeah, but it, it is a small cast, isn't it? You've got the, the sort of three main bandits, um, Adrasta and Corella. Corella, am I saying that right? Um, and then the, the Huntsman and the Guardsman, that's that's pretty much it. So, And Organon down on the pit. Organon, God, yes. The Jeffy titular Jeffy. creature, Organon. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the actual creature? Well, I think it's time now to play... <laughs> our game of the week. Now, we've had a long run of Guess That Cliffhanger, so I think today we're going to do a simple version of 20 questions. What I have done, Fraser, is I have selected a Doctor Who story at random from the randomizer.net. It could be any story between 1963 and 2022. I don't know if the power of the Doctor has been added to that archive yet, but anything else is fair game. Your job, using 20 questions is to figure out which story I am. Okay. Question one. Are you the Dominators? I promise you, I will never be the Dominators. So the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I salute the effort. I salute the effort. That was your shot to get it in one. Yep. Well, I'm I'm never going to beat the record, I don't think. So... Um, that was that was me me only chance. Um, right, is it a twenty first century Doctor Who story? Yes, it is. Question Ooh. three. Okay, then is it um, from the Stephen Moffat era? It is not from the Stephen Moffat era, and just to clarify, you mean. The era when Stephen Moffat was showrunner, so series yes. five through series ten. No, it is not from the Stephen Moffat showrunner era. Okay. Is it a Stephen Moffat scripted story? No, it is not. Question five. Okay. Is it a thirteenth Doctor story? It is not a thirteenth Doctor story. Okay. Question six. Is it a Russell T. Davis scripted story? It is Russell T. Davis scripted, so you're close now. You're not going to set the record on the show, but you probably could get it at under 10. What is your question seven? (laughs) 
Is it a Christmas special? It is not a Christmas special. That will take us to question eight. Uh, I'm not going to get it in ten, I don't think, but we'll we'll see how I do. Um, is it a Ninth Doctor story? It is a Ninth Doctor story. Okay. And that narrows it down. So Absolutely. speaking of the Ninth Doctor, what is your question nine? Um, so it's a Ninth Doctor story, scripted. You did say scripted by Russell, didn't you? Yes. Yes. Um, okay. Is it Boomtown? It is not Boomtown. It is not Boomtown. Question 10. I'm trying to think which ones he wrote now. He did wrote a large chunk of Series 1 and a large chunk of series well i guess it would only be series one because it's ninth doctor so if you want to get it in 10 you can take a wild stab or you can try and narrow it down further the good news is you're going to get it because there's more questions left than choices that russell davies wrote for the ninth doctor you would think that is it a two-part story it is a two-part story okay is it aliens of london slash world war three no, it is not Aliens of London World War Three. I think we're at question 12 now. So is it Bad Wolf slash Parting of the Ways? Yes, it is. It is Bad Wolf slash Parting of the Ways. That was not your Christmas performance. In nope. terms of playing the game, you were definitely not doing a uh, Myra Francis, but that is a <laughs> solid, respectable... That'll do me. Unsexy performance, but it gets the job done. <laughs> what I'm going to do now, however, is reload the randomizer. And we're going to see what my next victim will come up with. Now, the next episode that I record is going to be recorded at Galley. Ooh. So that's not a good venue for playing Guess That Cliffhanger. So we may very well be discussing this next story next week. Oh, oh, this is a divisive story, and this is a story that you either love or absolutely hate, and I am very curious to see how quickly my next guest who plays 20 questions is going to guess the next story. You are going to have, if this is your first time listening to Doctor Who literature, you're going to have to come back next week and hear how this one plays out. I'm interested in which this one is now, because obviously it's not the Dominators, because everyone loves that. (sighs) Fraser, you are treading upon my hospitality the way that Arato treads upon astrologers. (laughs) I'm going to have to stop it, otherwise you're going to stop asking us, come on. Well, I will say say the Dominators is coming back up on this show. We are now in episode 63 talking about Creature from the Pit. So, coming up very soon, the Dominators will be rejoining us in book 86. So we're a little less than six months away. But you will never guess who is my guest for the Dominators. I will leave you in suspense to figure out, how that, who, to figure out who that's going to be. Oh, I can't wait to find out. So, Fraser, what else do you have in store coming in the next few weeks and months? Ooh, like I said, it's been a little bit of a, a quiet patch over Christmas, so um, I 
probably going to get some more hamster with a blunt pen knives under my belt. Um, I know I've got some um, red dwarf to talk about with Joe um, because we're doing that for the the hamster extra side. Um, talking about my second sci-fi passion, which is red dwarf. Did you get red dwarf in the states? We did get red dwarf, and I'll tell you that when I was in college in Maryland. Maryland Public Television would run Doctor Who in movie format on Saturday nights at 11.30, I think it was. But they would run Red Dwarf immediately before in the half-hour slot. Yeah. So I'd always turn on the TV five minutes early because I was taping the Doctor Who episode in question. And I'd always see the end credits to Red Dwarf. So I know the closing theme song pretty well. <laughs> but in terms of the comedy value of the show didn't really translate to my American sensibilities so I'm not really that knowledgeable on Red Dwarf other than the closing credits <laughs> well no that's, that's that's a good part to enjoy um, yeah so I've got that coming up um, I know Ross is wanting to get um, me back on uh, Gallifrey's Most Wanted with um, Cy and I think Jeff as well to talk 13th Doctor so I need to book a uh, time slotting for there and I'm always knocking on Mark's door to do another trap one so um, I think I'm down to do a couple of the books that have been in the new targets that are going to be coming out in the summer so um, yeah little by little I'll be I'll be getting around um, you can always find us on Twitter at, at Felix Fraser if you want to drop in and say hi and um, let us know your thoughts on anything that I'm posting at that particular moment and I can confirm that Fraser responds very well to Dominator's memes. So hit him up <laughs> with a Quark meme. Hashtag Quark life. All right. Well, Fraser, we have had a good, long discussion. We've really wrapped our hands around it like uh, Tom Baker around Arado. So <laughs> thanks very much for joining me and have a great night. Thank you. Thank you for having us back on, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Doctor Who and the Creature from the Pit, written by David Fisher, televised as the Creature from the Pit, teleplay by David Fisher, televised in October and November 1979, published in January 1981, cover artist Steve Kite. The planet Chloris is very fertile, but metal is in short supply and has therefore become extremely valuable. A huge creature with most unusual physical properties arrives from an alien planet which can provide Chloris with metal from its own unlimited supplies in exchange for chlorophyll. However, the ruthless lady Adrasta has been able to exploit the shortage of metal to her own advantage and has no wish to see the situation change. The Doctor and Romana land on Chloris just as the creature's alien masters begin to lose patience over their ambassador's long absence. The action the aliens decide to take will have devastating consequences for Chloris unless something is done to prevent it. Looking at the physical copy of the novelization of The Creature from the Pit is an interesting look back at the Target Line's editorial policies circa 1981. We're in our third straight Steve Kite cover painting, and he's just brilliant. But, what a horrible back cover blurb. 
the blurb, which is on the reprint of my original 1981 Target Edition, spoils everything about the plot up through Part 4, which means you've gotten about 80 pages into the book, which isn't much longer than 80 pages, before you're left in any suspense. But I do love the rust-colored cover and spine. This is, of course, when Target was just starting to move away from exclusively white covers. So on my childhood bookshelf, where I had all the books lined up in story order, the rust-colored spine on the creature novelization ended a long, long run of pure white spines dating all the way back to the 1980s reprint of Pyramids of Mars. It's fascinating, too, to consider how the novelization is different from the TV story. And now we have a pretty good Rosetta Stone as to why they're different. The DVD text commentary for Creature was quite fond of the novelization, whereas most other classic series commentaries tend to mention the novelizations only in passing, if at all. So we know that Fisher was novelizing his scripts, and not the finished product, and thus anything that Douglas Adams added to the scripts in the edit, or that director Christopher Barry added in production, such as the Part 3 cliffhanger, which is nicely produced, but an abstract villain in danger moment, rather than a more traditional scare, is just not here. Fisher shows a disinterest in square story structures, not for him the house style of Target, where a four-part story gets 12 chapters, with a cliffhanger placed at the end of chapters 3, 6, and 9. Instead, Fisher spends minimal time on adapting the Part 1 material, but almost half the book on Part 4 alone. Errato is also given much, much more to say. If you want to know all about gender fluidity and the reproductive lifestyle of the Tythonian species, boy, is this ever the book for you. And of course, I refer you back to Fraser's dramatic reading of a few minutes earlier. I also love the observation that Tythonians are given a name based upon their credit rating. Now this is an idea that rings so, so true in this brave new world of 2023 from where I speak to you. Fisher uses the prose format to make some of the supporting characters more interesting, while Eileen Way, back for the first time on TV since her role as a sinister grandmother in the very first Doctor Who story, made Madame Carella, a drastic henchwoman, memorable on screen, Fisher lends her even more dimensions in prose. She's described as, quote, a wizened old woman with evil eyes, and we learn of her personality type that, had she not been born on Chloris, she, quote, would, of course, have retired long ago to spend her declining years spoiling her grandchildren and infuriating their parents. The three metal bandits, Torvin, Idu, and Enu, are given more depth and individuality. We learn that they're displaced mine workers, whose livelihoods were rescinded by Adrasta when she trapped Arado in the pit. This is more satisfying than the TV brief of having Torvin play the worst vacant stereotype that he could muster. Also very nifty is the random castle guard killed off in the Part 3 material. Fisher has his death scene occurring just seconds after he wishes on a star. The prose is mostly excellent, while the TV episode at times resembles a parody of what was up till then the quote-unquote traditional Who story. Fisher clearly has put some thought into making this sensible, giving us the notion of Chloris as a lived-in world, rather than a succession of political points. Adrasta's castle, quote, rose out of the jungle like a great black sea beast rising from the green depths. This is the only Doctor Who novel, I think, to use the word integument, and the neutron store that menaces Chloris in the Part 4 material is neatly described as dead, but deadly. And the footnotes, of course, are unique among target novelizations. They give Chloris a distinct system of flora and fauna, 
although one character is familiar enough with medieval Earth literature to describe someone else as quixotic. On the downside, the bit about Adrasta having a, quote, almost a lustful expression as she summons the creature to kill yet another failed underling is a bit much. It's also annoying that Fisher supplies scenes from Arado's POV before the Part 2 cliffhanger, which on TV is where Arado was first revealed in all its glory. But as we've established above, Fisher is more interested here in storytelling than adhering to the standard cliffhanger format. I also like Fisher's supplementing the fourth Doctor's on-screen habit of shameless but prolific name-dropping. Fred Astaire and Tenzing Norgay both show up here, as does Thomas Babington Macaulay, as you do. Fisher even gets into the Doctor's head very nicely. Not only does Romana observe that, quote, there are moments when I positively loathe that man, but we also get a good look into just how this Doctor ticks. Quote, it was the story of his own life, over-elaboration never knowing when to stop, always going that bit further, even when caution and good sense said you had gone far enough. How much trouble had he got himself into doing just that? A wise man would know when to call a halt. On the other hand, he reflected a wise man could get bored out of his mind, whereas he had always enjoyed himself. It had been interesting, sometimes even fun. End quote. Fisher also includes a debate between Organon and the Doctor as to why Arado was actually a giant brain. That can't be a brain, Organon objected. It's green, not gray. You can't have a green brain. Why not? Organon couldn't think of an immediate answer. On a side note, this may be the first Doctor Who book written from a vegetarian perspective. Tythonians are explicitly stated to be vegetarians, and the Doctor notes that plants can be repurposed to produce beefsteaks. In the end, as I told Fraser earlier, I think the novelization is a few pages too short. The final palace scene is not here, indicating that Adams, not Fisher, wrote it. But that was a good scene, and a necessary epilogue. It explains what happens to Chloris, after Adrasta is no longer in charge, and it gives Organon the last word, where in Fisher's world we last see him unconscious. The loss of the scene means that the book ends rather abruptly, and thus winds up being merely fantastic rather than, say, unsurpassably brilliant. I see something tall, something dark. Oh, Cloris, did that get here? I don't know, but it's tall and dark and... Handsome! Yes, yes, I know, Organon. Docked! Are you in charge here now? Yes. Good, good. Well, we've just dropped in to say goodbye and to give you this. It's from Arato. It's a draft contract for a trading agreement. Do you know what this is? Yes. What? It's a draft contract for a trading agreement. Oh, Cloris, did you know that? It was written in the stars. Next time on Doctor Who Literature. It's been almost 18 months worth of Target books since we last visited the Patrick Troughton era. With Malcolm Hulk deceased, and with Terence no longer writing 8-plus books a year, it's time for Ian Martyr, 
to write for a doctor with whom he didn't work. It's a double-barreled James Bond pastiche, partly set in Australia, so your old pal Jason will be trotting the globe, or at least flying across the fruited plain from New York to Los Angeles and the annual Gallifrey One convention, where a true globe-trotting guest with an Australian accent will be joining me for what we hope is the first live recording of a Doctor Who literature interview. And if the timing doesn't work out, next week's episode may be very short indeed. So tune in as my guest and I sip some fine Alaskan wine and celebrate Doctor Who and the enemy of the world. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Special thanks to my special guest, Fraser Gregory. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. My old tweets about the entire series under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. My current Twilight Zone watch through under hashtag TZ Pilgrimage. And on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.